Good morning, and let's open our Bibles now to the book of Acts, chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 17 to 42. Uh, about a year ago, I took my grandchildren to a place called Dave and Buster's, and if you've ever been there, you know it's a game arcade kind of place, and we were playing uh, whack-a-mole, where the little mole pops his head up and you whack him, and then another one pops up and you whack him, and you do it forever. And uh, the amazing thing about that game is it reminds me a lot of the apostles in the book of Acts. They are buoyant, to say the least. Uh, they are resilient, and that's what struck me as I looked at this text. And as we continue our way through Acts, we will see that more and more. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning in Acts chapter 5 and verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, was filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought out. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us? But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Um, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed. This is so ironic to me, because the very thing he does in the face of uh, the accusation by the officers is do the very thing they've told him not to do over and over again. That, this text is amazing that way, and I'll point it out more in a moment. But he does say, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care 
what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up and claimed to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all those who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Irrepressible, huh? And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for this text. We pray now that you would help us focus our attention upon what we need to hear. We pray the Holy Spirit would be our teacher, and we pray that our hearts would be receptive and responsive to this, your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That great theologian and intellectual, Yogi Berra, once said, it's deja vu all over again been there and done that. And so just in chapter 4, verses 1 through 31, we had the first arrest and uh, arraignment before the Sanhedrin council that was brought about uh, through the preaching of Christ as Messiah and the resurrection. And here we run into it again, and it'll be a recurring theme throughout the book of Acts. Uh, in verses 12 through 16 of chapter 5, we see an amazing great progress and a striking number of people were healed um, through the, after the uh, church discipline of Ananias and Sapphira and the fear of God fell upon the place and they were preaching with great zeal. But here, we're presented with a vision of a God who works by irony subverting and overruling human powers who appear to be in control. In the book of 1 Corinthians, I'm reminded of this. Chapter 1, verse 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God has a way of working that transcends our ability to see it or grasp it. What looks like the biggest loss in the history of the universe, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, is the greatest thing that saves us and redeems us in all the world. And so God often works that way. And because of this, there can be a mission uh, in which courageous people speak boldly of the realities denied and rejected by mere human powers. And so the first thing we see here is what I call the jailbreak. Uh, the apostolic healing mission provokes the second attack by the religious authorities, much as the healing of the congenital cripple uh, provoked the first imprisonment. 
angered by the failure of their first assault on the apostles, dismayed to see that they had ignored what the court had prohibited, and threats, they were filled with jealousy uh, of, of the growing power and popularity of the movement, and so the high priest rose up and decided to take further action. Now understand that mostly the, the council here, the senate or the leaders, the Sanhedrin council, was Sadducean. And this is another irony I find in this text. It's everywhere. First of all, who let the apostles out of prison? Angels. Guess who didn't believe in angels? The Sadducees. What do they preach the whole time to the Sadducees? The resurrection. Guess who didn't believe in the resurrection? The Sadducees. They didn't believe in any kind of afterlife. Totally secular almost in their view. They're sort of representative of liberal theology as a whole. But mostly Sadducees were on this council and uh, they were filled with envy. They were gripped by jealousy at the success of other people. When you don't rest in the righteousness of another, you're constantly building your own record to have standing and status before people and perhaps God. And when somebody takes the limelight away from you, somebody steals your glory and your power, it enrages you. I often discover my idols more by what I'm angry about than any other way. I become incensed if somebody blocks me from what I think is a righteous calling in my life or, or an idol in my life. And the biggest idols I've ever had in the last 40 years have to do with church and ministry. I have a whole um, room full, as it were, of ministry idols. And I see that working in this Sanhedrin council. What are they so upset about? They don't even listen to the message. They don't give any thought or any credence or credibility to these apostles. They never engage with what's being said and try to reason back or argue with it. They are threatened. They are deeply threatened. And when a person is threatened... Jealousy often arises and you want to destroy the person who's rubbing your face in it because you can only see horizontally but not vertically. And what I have seen about self-righteousness and self-righteousness is uh, there's, a, there's a religious side to our flesh that is extremely self-righteousness. And so everything I see happening in Acts chapter 5 is driven by this self-justification method and they, they were so into record building, they were so into how they appeared and they wanted to earn their own righteousness and they could not abide being shown up or made to look bad or to lose status in the eyes of the people. And so self-justification makes you a mean person. You're always in conflict. You're always looking horizontally, seeing who's shining more than you are, and you hate them. I can remember the first few times I ever heard Tim Keller preach. I thought to myself, man, he's good. I really love to listen to these, this guy preach. And then somebody else I knew was listening to him, and they were talking about how great he was, and I thought to myself, I also hate him because I'm never going to be that good. You know what that is? That's self-righteousness. That's doing exactly what 
these Sadducees were doing. And so, since they have to be and do better, they put them in a public jail, Peter and John plus others. And as the Jewish leaders went to public to assert their influence, an angel of the Lord worked night at night secretly, an angel being a supernatural being, a minister of God. Sometimes it's the angel of the Lord, which is often a theophany. Other times it's just an angel, a ranking angel. And there was divine intervention. And just as an aside, as I mentioned earlier, the Sadducees, who are so upset, don't even believe in angels. They never bring the angels up after the report comes back. Uh, and so the agent of their release told them, actually commanded them in an act of civil disobedience. I want you to go stand in the temple courts and tell people the words of life. Notice in the English Standard Version, if that's the one you're using, life is capitalized. The words of life are the words about Jesus, which is the gospel. The angel tells them to go to the very place where they had been forbidden to speak and to preach and to show you how bold and zealous these disciples, I mean these apostles were, they went at daybreak. They didn't let a moment go by. They had been miraculously released from prison and they show up at the temple to preach and the irony here is they think they have them locked up and have them shut up but rather they're doing the very thing. But let me say something about the concept of the words of life. The gospel is the only thing that creates real life in an individual. In other words, the preaching of Christ, him crucified, him resurrected, ascended at the right hand of the Father is life to us. And when you believe the gospel, you are brought into life, eternal life. And eternal life is not just a quantitative word indicating endless duration, but it is a qualitative word. To really live is to believe the gospel and to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That is real life. Everything else is death. My idolatry is death. Things I try to replace Jesus with in my life to get some sort of status or esteem or to feel better or to look better or to impress, that is death. And we all from time to time struggle with the idols of the heart, looking for life in all the wrong places and not realizing that the only thing that gives us real life pulsating throughout our being is Jesus and our relationship with him as we draw from him like a vine and a branch the very essence of life and they're out there preaching the message that creates life and everything else outside of that is death there is a way that seems right to a man but the end thereof are the ways of death religion is death it's death. Now, I don't really, you know, I only believe there are two religions in the whole world. There's religion called works righteousness. You can put it whatever label you want on it, but it's you following a code or following a person and you doing everything to elevate yourself. 
Christianity is God coming to you in your helplessness. God through Christ doing everything he requires of you and then giving you a free gift of life. One is by grace, the other is by works. And so the Sadducees couldn't comprehend this message, couldn't comprehend why people were responding to it. And Jesus himself is the author of new life. Here the apostles are recommissioned to be steadfast and buoyant in proclaiming the hope to Israel first in the temple courts. Jesus is Messiah, and he fulfilled all their hopes. People often claim that those of us who believe that the church is the true Israel, that is, Gentiles, the wall has been broken down, the middle wall of partition between the two, the book of Ephesians tells us that the church is both believing Jew and Gentile united. And that all of this uh, is fulfilled in the church uh, although I do believe I'm an optimist of the gospel toward the end. I believe that will happen because of Romans. But fulfillment theology. And there's a vast difference between the two. We are one body of Christ. There is one temple of God. Which is indwelt by. So as we look at daybreak. They're out preaching. Seventy summoned the prisoners. And with some irony they sent to the jail for the apostles only to discover what you yourself already know from reading the text that the jail was empty and these human attempts are divinely frustrated and the report of the officers highlights the miracle and they're puzzled by this and they're wondering what is going on the Sanhedrin thought that all the power was on their side but here they're dealing with one in whom resides all power and so in the temple courts they're teaching and preaching and the temple guard apprehends them noting the popularity they didn't kind of arrest them aggressively or violently but carefully led them back to the Sanhedrin and they were arraigned by the Sanhedrin once again questioned by the high priest given strict orders and instead of obeying, they had filled Jerusalem with the teaching of Christ as Messiah, resurrected Lord, ascended at the right hand, and coming again. And so they were guilty of contempt of court. They were guilty of blood, that is, of, of invoking divine vengeance. That's what the Sanhedrin saw it as. And they feared the popular uprising, the truthfulness, of the apostolic claims about Jesus were not even considered. The Sadducees were more concerned about maintaining uh, and, uh, repression and control over the apostles. And so Peter speaks and he does exactly what they had uh, ordered him not to do. The first charge of uh, contempt of court, they basically answered by saying we obey God rather than men. And I've told you before about civil disobedience, which has become somewhat of an issue in our current cultural situation. And uh, civil disobedience in the Bible only occurs in two instances. When uh, the government requires you to do something God forbids or forbids you to do something God requires, then you must obey God rather than men. 
But first Romans chapter 13 verses 1 through 7, second Peter, Peter himself, chapter 1, chapter 2 verses 1 through 4, both address the idea of submission to the authorities. That the authorities, all authorities are of God. They are common grace designations by God to keep uh, life from being chaotic. What is the first instance of government in the Bible? Does anybody know? The first instance of government in the Bible is the cherubim at the Garden of Eden, at the uh, gate of the Garden of Eden facing eastward with flaming swords. That is the first instance of government and that government was compassion because they did not want them to have access to the tree of life. They were expelled out of the garden which was an act of judgment and mercy. So we have to be careful about civil disobedience. We have to submit to the authorities. Nobody likes the word submit. I've never met a single person in my life who wants to submit to anyone about anything. But that is our calling. And so Peter does exactly what they have told him not to do. And he speaks with great boldness about Christ. But I want to look a little bit closer at his message here. The Sanhedrin <clears throat> heard these words of defiance and they were furious but for diplomatic uh, but for the diplomatic intervention later on of Gamaliel they probably would have fulfilled their wish to put him to death now Gamaliel was a Pharisee and as such exhibited a far more tolerant spirit than did the rest but um, when Peter stands up to preach, it's really a mini-sermon, and, and his concern was not to defend themselves, but to lift up Christ. He says, we must obey God rather than men, verse 29, and in so doing, laid down the principle, which I just talked about, of civil and ecclesiastical disobedience. To be sure, Christians are called to be conscientious citizens and generally speaking to submit to human authorities. But if the authority concerned misuses its God-given power to command what he forbids or forbid what he commands, then the Christian's duty is to disobey the human authority in order to obey God's authority. Only two instances in the Bible where that happened and this is one of them. Having stated their primary responsibility was to obey God, the apostles emphasized three truths about him. First, God, who is the God of our fathers, raised Jesus from the dead, whom the Jewish leaders had killed by hanging him on a tree. That's boldness. There's, I mean, he is nailing them. But God raised him. You rejected him, but God vindicated him. God exalted him to his own right hand. When, when, why does Peter use the language of hanging on a tree? He does that also in, a, in the book of 1 Peter. What does that mean? Well, uh, the book of Galatians tells us, but Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, uh, for everyone who hangs upon a tree is cursed by God. What we learn from this is that the Sanhedrin is hearing the message that in the crucifixion of Jesus, he was cursed for our sins. And uh, the death of Christ, you know, took place outside the city on Golgotha, the skull, hill of the skull. 
There Christ was crucified outside of the camp. There he received the curse. He redeemed us by taking the curse of our sin. God says, if you obey me, I bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. Christ submitted himself to our judgment, received it for himself, and was hung upon the cross. Of course, all that the Sanhedrin heard when they said that is they're blaming us for shedding the blood of Jesus. But they failed to see what the scriptures clearly teach, that he was being cursed in order that we could be blessed. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince or leader and savior. And so that from that supreme position of honor and power, he is able to give repentance and forgiveness of sin, which are both gifts of God to Israel. Moreover, of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the apostles were witnesses, not just eyewitnesses, um, um, but mouth witnesses, for they were called to bear witness to what they had seen. And yet, the chief witness to Jesus Christ is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him through repentance and faith. Now, one quick thing I want to add here that I think is so important. Notice that forgiveness of sins always precedes repentance. John Calvin was the first person that helped me see that. He said that when God calls us to repent, it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. No person would ever repent if they thought on the other end of that uh, repentance there was no forgiveness. But because of who Christ is and what he's accomplished upon the cross, shedding his blood for our forgiveness, we are called in view of forgiveness to repent because of the forgiveness of sins. It is the goodness of God that leads us to the repentance, not the severity of God that leads us to repentance. Otherwise, there would be no hope. Thus, the sermon begins and ends with a reference to obeying God, that God's people are under obligation to obey Him, and if they do so, even though they may suffer when they have to disobey human authorities, they will be richly rewarded in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, things had gotten to a fevered pitch. The council was furious. They had been touched on a raw nerve, so to speak. But finally, they probably would have fulfilled their wish to put them to death, but there was a guy there named Gamaliel, and many of you know who he was. He was a Pharisee, and he was much more tolerant to the apostles because he did at least understand the Old Testament scriptures, and he had more in common with them, perhaps, than he did with the rival party of the Sadducees. He was a grandson and follower of the famous liberal rabbi Hillel, the school of Hillel. And he was given the honorific and affectionate title of Rabban, our teacher. And Saul of Tarsus, as many of you know, had been one of his pupils. He had a reputation for scholarship, wisdom, and moderation, and he certainly was honored by all the people. His behavior on this occasion was fully in keeping with his public image. He stood up and he gave instructions to the apostles to be put outside for a little while so that the council could go into executive session. He then proceeded to restrain their anger and to counsel caution. 
he gave two examples because of historical precedent he counseled caution Thutis and Judas the account of Gamaliel which is recorded as giving of their careers is brief they rose up they claimed to be somebody they had followers then they were dispersed and their movements came to nothing same thing with Judas he arose in the days of the census, that inflammatory event as a symbol of Roman rule by taxation. He induced people to revolt under his leadership, but he also perished and his whole following melted away. Thus Gamaliel sketches their histories in parallel. Both men appeared, advanced claims, and won a following. But then each was killed and all his followers were scattered. Now, Considering all events, Gamaliel took the failure of both revolts as an object lesson that justified a policy of laissez-faire. His advance to the council is given in verse 38. Leave these men alone, let them go. For their, if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. If on the other hand it is from God, you will not be able to stop them. Now, we should not be too ready to congratulate Gamaliel, Gamaliel on uttering this invariable principle. To be sure, in the long run, what is from God will always triumph, and what is merely human, let alone diabolical, will not. Nevertheless, in the shorter run, evil plans sometimes succeed, and good ones conceived in accordance with the will of God sometimes fail. So the Gamaliel principle is not reliable as an index to what is from God and what is not. So while he was used by God in this moment to spare his preachers, uh, he is by no means a model of how to deal with these things. Finally, the conclusion of the matter. The council accepted Gamaliel's reasoning, his speech persuaded them, and then and before they let him go, they gave him the famous 39 lashes minus one. And they ordered them for the second time not to speak in the name of Jesus. Now, 39 lashes is no picnic. They were beaten. And the apostles' reaction certainly arouses our admiration. They left the Sanhedrin, Hedron. their backs were cruelly lacerated and bleeding, yet they were rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Luke's expression is a beautiful antithesis, the honor to be dishonored, the grace to be disgraced. They were in fact doing what Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount had told them to do regarding persecution. They were rejoicing in it. Luke has now concluded his account of the two waves of persecution that splashed upon this infant church. And so under the attempts to destroy them, and I could give you a whole history going through the first three or four centuries of it, the culture will always persecute us for righteousness sake. But what I find most moving is though it's not explicit in this text, the resiliency of these apostles is there because the hand of God is constantly 
moving. God is interacting with his church. God is present within his church, working out his will. And it teaches me wisdom in this regard, not to be too quick to judge what's going on by what I see and what I know. God is on his throne. He is at work even now. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God today. It is life to us. And we pray that we may internalize by your spirit, you may write the law of God upon our hearts and sanctify us and empower us to be people who courageously stand, even in the face of persecution, for Jesus, for the Christ, the resurrected, ascended one, the one at the right hand who has all power, the one who is coming again to restore all things and usher in the day of the Lord in which there will be a complete consummation of all of your purposes. Now, Lord, continue to minister to us as we worship. In Jesus' name, amen.